This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Did you read with Tim Montgomery? Welcome to the latest edition of the Times Opinion Podcast, Did You Read? My name is Tim Montgomery, editor of the Times Opinion Pages, and this week I'm joined by Philip Collins, Matthew Paris, and Rachel Sylvester. And we have an unusual edition for you this week. There's been a big ding-dong on the Times Opinion Pages between Phil and Matthew on the qualities of David Cameron. And so we are going to be talking about David Cameron, now nearly four years into his premiership, and Rachel Sylvester is going to try and be judge between these two giants debating our Prime Minister. So what do we have for you this week? There's been a lot of pressure on Ed Miliband to set out what sort of country he wants to lead. Whether you like his answer or not, he has now supplied one. There's been no such pressure on David Cameron, and it's time there was. What does he stand for? What would a second-term Cameron government actually want to do? The reason we've been given no answer is that there is no answer. The first and near-sacred duty of any Conservative Party since the Second World War and the core of its prospectus is to stop socialism and resist the creep of Labour government into every corner of our lives and pockets. Anything more is a bonus. Cameron is fulfilling that first duty and in due course should, and I hope will, do more on the bonus. David Cameron is a natural elder statesman. Ed Miliband is an instinctive ideological radical. And for both of them, that is potentially their greatest strength, but also potentially their biggest flaw. Voters want more passion from the Prime Minister, but fear the Labour leader's zeal. Which instinct triumphs will determine the result of the next general election? Well, Phil, you started this all off last Friday in your column in the Times. Like and I think playground it... talks. You started it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably appropriate. And it took off immediately on Twitter. And I think the editor of The Independent described your article as an early candidate for, for column of the year. But I've got somewhere to go. Then. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it was a really fiery piece. And you, I think in one position, uh, towards the end of your article, which all uh, Times subscribers, by the way, can access at uh, thetimes.co.uk slash Common Central, you described David Cameron as a man made entirely of smoke. Do you yes. stand by that, or was that 
over-the-top rhetoric. Oh, I think I was too generous there because to say that he's made of smoke is to imply that somewhere there is a fire. And I don't think there is a fire anywhere under David Cameron. I think much as Matthew said, he's a man who left Oxford, looked around and thought, oh no, what am I going to do with my life? And stumbled into politics. Yes, many great men, many great men uh, could answer the same description. The idea of being handed your responsibilities, your duties by fate rather than coming with some fire in your belly to establish some uh, ideological utopia isn't necessarily an unattractive one. There's a lot of space between knowing nothing about what you think and ideological utopia on the other hand. We don't have to go straight to the other extreme of of Stalinism to to find some space between them. And my the irritation, the tone of my piece was really because I suddenly realized that the, the forces of conservatism were marshalling the, for the election. And the, what they, there were three things that, that made me realize that. One was the response to Ed Miliband's speech on competition policy and the hysterical reaction to the 50p tax announcement. The second was a, a whole load of pieces from conservatives about the last, um, about the deficit, none of which so much as mentioned an international global banking crisis, which is an astonishing piece of deliberate stupidity on their part and the third was the what, what follows from that was the the imputed labor spending plan so people took a speech from ed balls in which he said out loud what he was going to do and it was written up as a secret spending so, so what you're saying is that the tories played low and you wanted to play low in response absolutely I so very, you would you would admit in a way then you were playing low ball I, politics in that column. I, not not only would i admit i did admit i said said as much i said okay well if these are the terms of trade let's sink to them and we can play this game too and so yes i hit back very and hard. is that a columnist job absolutely absolutely Th- those are the terms of politics that is the argument which so, is gearing so, up so, for the next election so, so wanting, i hit them what, back wanting wanting to write a below the belt <laughs> column you announced that the terms of trade were low and you were going to sink to them, Absolutely. But, uh, uh, who who brought them down? I don't agree with Tim's description of your your column as as, as fiery. I, I thought it was it was a, a tense and slightly awkward column in which you were trying to be nice about uh, Ed Miliband uh, and, and and plainly finding the duty pretty painful, and escaping by having a few punches at uh, David Cameron, which which struck me as rather confected indignation. Because no, in your columns, you've not you've not been a fan of Ed Miliband. Just the week before, um, Phil, you criticised his attempt to be the Roosevelt of of this age, and uh, you did seem like to be stretching to defend Ed Miliband and finding it easier to attack David Cameron almost as an excuse because you couldn't find reasons to support the no, leader. No, the, the point of the column was to attack David Cameron. I think that you're you're struggling to read into it uh, mm-hmm. a defence of Ed Miliband. I said two very careful things about Ed Miliband, which I stand by, which I've said before. One of which is he has been asked repeatedly, "What kind of country do you aspire to lead?" He has told us the answer to that. Now. I've said many times, it's not particularly to my taste, and nor do I think it especially popular, but he has answered that question, whether we like his answer or not. And secondly, I said very deliberately and carefully at the end, that if he becomes prime minister, then there will be a reckoning, much like Hollande has had, where Ed Miliband will have to end up renouncing quite a lot of what he currently thinks. So that so my defense of Ed Miliband, if that's what it was, was, was <laughs> absolutely... Going to have to renounce it all? Yes, it wasn't. <laughs> the, the point of the column was not to defend Ed Miliband. I, I, I don't think his, his prospectus is a particular well, popular let, one. Let, then let's talk about uh, about David Cameron. You, you said he doesn't know what he thinks. You know there's an element of truth in that. A lot of good conservatives don't particularly know 
what they think. They go on instinct. In which case, Matthew, you've got to be competent. If your only claim to public office is that you know what you're doing, you've got to be competent. You've written very eloquently in the last few weeks how in in the matter of organising his own politics, David Cameron is hopeless at it. He's made no successful attempt to get hold of this European Dissidences Party. And the person in this studio who he needs to fear is not me nor Ed Miller, it's Tim and his friends. Because if David Cameron does win a second term, he won't survive it because his party thinks he doesn't stand for anything. I'm beginning to think he may be right in his approach to the dissidents. I've always argued you're right, that he should crack down, come down on them like a, a ton of bricks. But actually, he's just sort of kept out of the fight. And slowly, the rest of the Tory right are getting impatient with the dissidents. And that might be the right way to do it. You say he's incompetent. Well, there is a sort of muddling through feeling, certainly, about uh, about David Cameron. But he, well, does, muddling, but he does muddle through and he does get no, he through. Just Who else could have uh, formed this coalition? Who else could have kept the thing on the road with the Liberal Democrats? I don't think anyone could. There's a wonderful... Who else didn't win the election? ...wonderful phrase in... Um, the picture of Dorian Gray. It couldn't, couldn't be Gordon Brown. Well, after uh, an international crisis. There's I a mean, one, uh, Paul, uh, you have to uh, be. Let, let Matthew what speak. Picture have to. <laughs> in the picture of Dorian Gray, where Wilde describes an aged Tory colonel as one of those old-fashioned Tories whose opinions uh, may be wrong, but there is much to be said for their instincts. Can no, I, I don't know about the Cameron's. The problem with David Cameron, Matthew, is mm. that his instincts have changed. So he started off as a sort of Tory moderniser. It was all hugging huskies and open he and liberal. He still is, really. Yes, but then he seems to I don't be... I think he is at all. He seems to be tacking to the right at every opportunity and caving into the back benches. So there's a, it's a problem that he looks weak, but also inauthentic. So, so you don't know really what his instincts are. Are his instincts as the moderniser or the traditionalist? I think he's actually more traditionalist than he gave the impression to begin with. Apart from on social issues, you're not sure quite who he is. I think in his gut, John Prescott so you can't rely on his instincts. John Prescott spoke of traditional values in a modern setting, <laughs> and I think that's probably what David Cameron is. He he is a cautious modernizer, but the whole modernization, bunny hugging stuff has had to be put on hold because of the state of the economy. So we don't and, uh, really know what his instincts are then. I mean, whenever I uh, see something which I think... Road, well, what decent. does that mean? What, I mean, do what, what does that... What, what, I don't know what that means. But I mean, that, that doesn't, that doesn't take me anywhere. When I think... When I confront an mm. actual problem that a country faces and then, then all you've got to offer me for the, the way forward is, oh, this man's got these instincts, which we're finding it very hard to articulate what they even are. I don't know what that means. And when you're asking for the country to give you a second term as prime minister... Surely we'd want a little bit more than that. So new Labour of you, you think there are solutions to things. There aren't usually solutions. No, I don't. I think things get a tiny bit better. Yes, and they are. I think things get better in increments. (laughs) So I think at the heart of um, Phil's piece, um, Matthew, was I think where Rachel was taking us, that David Cameron began his leadership of the Conservative Party that big society message, yeah. promising the greenest government ever. One third of ministers would be women. He would end punch and duty politics. Um, you know, he would stop banging on about Europe and immigration. And it isn't just that he seems to have moved on one or two of those themes. He seems to have moved on nearly all of them. And I think it's stretching credibility to believe that you can just blame that all on the economy. And Phil's point, which I think is a good one, is... What can we know about 
a second term Cameron what would he be like would he be like that early Cameron when he sees the Tory leadership against David Davis or would it be more like what we've had recently over the last two or three years I don't agree with you Tim that he's slipped on all of them the the, the search to get women more involved in, in, in politics in the House of Commons in the Conservative Party the, the, the effort to do that continues it, 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 it's but very I difficult think we all, all know that three, three people run the Conservative Party at the moment David Cameron George Osborne and Linton Crosby yes. women aren't really involved in the leadership of the Conservative Party Rachel Sylvester has written about this a number of times that there is a problem in, in getting good people who are women to the top of the Conservative Party and it's, it's a problem the party's doing its best to remedy by trying to recruit more women MPs and they're delighted every time they do but it's, it's always difficult. On, on, on the green issues I, I do think that the public mood is that the world economic crisis has put some of the green stuff on hold. And I think David Cameron correctly The green crap, I think, uh, the Prime Minister called it, not green well, stuff I, recently. He denies that, but so he, he, he may you have. You think he really believed in that stuff? You, yes, you I don't, do. You don't think it was just, this is very clever politics, let's just say this stuff for a while, which it, it seems obvious it was that. No, I, I think he did. There was probably a bit of Steve Hilton there. But the, th the thing which I do think he will come back to, and, and I think he should is the big society. I think he really does believe in that. Mm, I think there is I, something I conservative so too, yeah. about that. And although everybody thought it was a silly name, it is a name that has stuck. And as and when we can afford to talk more about these things, I really would like to hear but David. He was, I, th I think he believed in it. He just couldn't sell it. That was the problem. And no, eventually yeah. he I think it's worse. About no, it's, it it's worse than that. It's worse than that. And, and I, I, too, I think it's potentially a very good idea. There's obviously something very intelligent, sophisticated underneath that idea. But he found it very difficult to articulate. It's a very difficult political concept, actually, yes, to articulate into the, into the sound bites of politics. And also he didn't quite know, as ever, what he meant. Well, he meant his mum being a magistrate. That's all he meant, really. I, I, I think if the big theme of... <laughs> this episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Paul's article was that Cameron was a man made entirely of smoke. Um, the big theme of your article on Saturday, um, Matthew, was actually look at this man's achievements in very difficult times. And um, you talked about astonishing progress on economic growth, Matthew. And I, I kind of want to bring Rachel in at this point, Rachel. Do you think, agree with Matthew's essential case that in extraordinarily difficult times, no money, as that famous memo from Liam Byrne said, at the first coalition government since the Second World War, are, is this government achieving big things? I think it has done a lot. I think it's, it's held its nerve on the deficit. And I think it's also the reforms on schools, welfare, health, I think was a complete dog's breakfast, pointless. But I think that it has done things that it set out to do. And it's held the coalition t together, which in itself is quite an achievement. Mm. Um, I think the problem has almost been more the shift in tone from the top, which is back to this kind of uncertainty about who Cameron is. It's gone from being sort of open, inclusive, decent, to being sort of rather shrill, nasty, kind of petty and bickering. Um, putting people down, pessimistic rather than optimistic. So, and I think that that almost overshadows the actual achievements that government has made. And this is something, Matthew Parrish, you've been worried about. You have felt there's too much, too big a, 
negative tone to uh, too significant a negative tone to the government recently. I begun to feel that the optimism that's 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 coming as the economy comes back ought to be reflected in the way government talks. I, I, I think I think we can feel excited about the future, about technology, about infrastructure, about new cities. I would like to hear more of that sort of talk, and I, I, I think that, that we will. And in, in many ways, that is what Cameron means. Uh, it, it means more than his mother being a magistrate. There's nothing wrong with people's mothers or daughters being magistrates. Um, I, I prefer it to Tony Blair. I mean, what does Tony Blair mean? It means his his rich, suntanned mates being exempted from government legislation. <laughs> oh, now we're fighting. Uh, but Matthew... Uh, no low blows there. But back to the tone thing, wouldn't Linton Crosby say the big society is a barnacle on the bottom of the boat? It would be seen as a distraction in the current mood at the top of the Tory party. And actually, the thing that I think Cameron... It really was it was an ideological and a sort of genuine policy idea that had significant substance to it. And that's been sort of swept away in this search for sort of almost like the lowest common denominator core vote strategy. I don't know Linton Crosby, and I, I, I don't know if he is quite the brute that he is uh, portrayed as being, but I suppose he's hired uh, to pack a punch for the general election. And, and when you want to pack punches with him, in imminent general elections. You probably don't talk too much about Huskies and the big society, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us, including Cameron and Cameron's own instinctive beliefs, shouldn't remember that people want something that they can like and look forward to, uh, as well as be reminded of what they don't want to like. Phil, Phil, Phil Collins, do you, do you buy this essential Matthew riposte you that judge Cameron on his achievements and they've actually been quite significant in historical terms. Oh, I'll happily do that. Yeah, I think Linton Crosby's campaign for the election will be all about the Labour Party and it will all be about a, a fight about the past. Well, I, I, I want to come on to Ed Miliband in a minute, but just answer that specific question I asked about the government's achievements. Rachel put her finger on the main point, which is the government kept its nerve because to say that they've made astonishing progress on the deficit is obviously not true given they had to tear up their plans that they set out themselves. But what they did is very intelligently they kept on the course. So now things have come right, as economies are always bound to come right, just through the animal but spirits this is of the, business. this is the fastest growing economy in the oh, Western yeah. world. It's, it's, very, it's, 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 not, it's not just coming right by accident. They didn't I don't, have to keep I don't their really that wasn't that wasn't a, well, you know they look, could easily have lost then. Sure, mm. well, let me first though. I don't think that the failure in the first half of the parliament was particularly due to government policy and I don't think the recovery in the second half is particularly due to government policy either. However, in politics of course it's your task to take the credit Where are for the those spirits things. reviving the French economy just at the moment. Well, then they're, they're not clearly. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying government can't stifle mm. economies. I'm just saying I don't think this government has done so. Neither do I mm. think it particularly has revived it since because it hasn't really done anything. But insofar as policies matters at all, I think they've kept their nerve and I think there will be a political dividend for them in the, uh, the next just, general election. Just before bringing in Rachel for the meat of what um, she, she, she said at the beginning, um, a question to you, Matthew Barris. I've been slightly confused with a couple of your columns. One of the columns I most agreed that you wrote a little while ago was what you <laughs> talked about earlier, which is that you'd like the Tories to embrace the possibilities of technology, big infrastructure investments, new cities. You talked very imaginatively about, you know, two million people potentially living in and around Cambridge. And I was quite excited. I think that sort of big, bold national rescue message is a, is a good one for Conservatives. But at other times, you said people don't want big talk. They just want the government to do the basic things. And I, I sense a sort of conflict going on in your soul, political soul somewhere. 
I think that sound administration is probably the first thing that most people want. And I do think that under the years of, of New Labour, we did begin to get a bit of a banana republic feel about uh, the way we were going. So I think the return of sound administration and the dispelling of economic anxiety were the government's first and most important pr priorities. But in the end, and here actually I agree with Phil, in the end, once you've calmed everything down, once you've dispelled insecurity and anxiety, once you've got things onto an even keel, you do need to give people a sense of where you're sailing. And that is what Cameron does have to do next. And if that's all Phil was uh, saying, then uh, then then I I'm, agree. I'm happy but to settle for that. It's not all I was saying, but I'm very happy to agree on that basis. That, that, yes, he does need to say where he's going next. Now, of course, the election isn't just going to be a uh, verdict on David Cameron. It's going to be a uh, choice. And Rachel, you compare... David Cameron as sort of this slightly sort of modest, reassuring figure with a more ideological Ed Miliband. And who do you think the public are going to want at this this time? I think there's a danger for Ed Miliband that the public will be quite risk averse, particularly if it feels like the economy is coming around. Um, there'll be a sense of, you know, we're setting out on this course, why should we change course now? And Ed Miliband, I think, in a way, what's most admirable and appealing about him is he is setting out this really quite radical change. You know, he talks about a more responsible capitalism. He's rewriting the whole rule book mm. of the city, you know, business, energy companies. He's talking about price freezes, all these kind of radical proposals that would change the way that the country's run in, in proper, significant, dramatic ways. And I think people might, in, in more optimistic times, people might find that more attractive than they would now. I think they're dangerous that they'll feel frightened by that. Isn't it the reverse that actually, if the economy had stayed flat on its back, Ed Miliband's we've really got to shake things up message actually might have resonated. But actually, if people can be persuaded enough that actually the economy is recovering, the idea of someone coming in with a radical tear up these institutions, tear up competition laws, actually is, is more frightening. And so Ed Miliband may have peaked with his message, and by the next election, m it might be a bit unsettling and frightening mm. for people, as you well, say. Well, I think a George, Osborne, George Osborne's been hoping for for a while is a, 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 a slight shift upwards, so it's a start of a recovery, but a recovery that doesn't feel very secure. Mm -hmm. So with the threat of a sort of everything going wrong, if, if we take any risks or if we change course, mm. give the car Hold on keys to nurse back for to fear the, of something Exactly, worse, give yeah. the car keys back to the people who crashed the car, all the cliches that they will come out with. And I'm sure Phil's right, it'll be a lot about, you know, don't let Labour back, they created this, which obviously is B bogus and unfair in a lot of ways but combined with what w might be seen as a actually from Miliband whose public image has until recently been rather sort of cautious boring character it's actually turned out to be rather sort of firebrand um, you know it'd be, it, it might not it might be too scary I completely agree with you Rachel I, I, I think that consciously or unconsciously the, the, the Conservatives don't want to reassure people too much. Mm. They want an element of anxiety in the public mind at the next mm. election, which is why I've always thought that even if the recovery hadn't come, the Tories might have won. As long as people are frightened, um, they mm. will tend to vote Conservative. What the, the Conservative Party don't want is a feeling at the next election that, that the economic crisis has gone away. Uh, we're all in clover. There's 
plenty of money, in which yeah. case, why not have a go with Labour? They'll nice spend it on nice things. Yeah. There was a really I, interesting poll that Peter Kellner did, and it was comparing, imagine you're in the Wizard of Oz land, Oz, and do you, would you prefer the Tin Man who has no heart, or the scarecrow who has no head. And it was it was six, something like 60-40 people would prefer no heart to no head. And at the moment, I think people are worried, sufficiently worried, that they want somebody, you know, even if they're heartless, but know what to do with the money, rather than full of, you know, heart in the right place, but potentially in, untrustworthy what on the finances. heartless and don't know what to do with the money? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the, the risk of turning Rachel into Nick Clegg, I agree with Rachel too. Um, <laughs> I think the sig- most significant fact of this whole parliament has been Labour's inability to change around the idea of their profligacy. And I think that they made a fatal mistake very early on by not apologising for a degree of fiscal incontinence of which they are guilty. As a consequence, they're being charged with a whole lot of the problem. And they, they could have avoided that fate. And so it's, to, to that extent, it's their own fault that they will receive these blows from the Conservatives. And I think that is the most significant fact of all. And I don't know that Labour can do anything about that now. Uh, f- f- final word to you, I'm afraid, because we're running out of time, Rachel. But quoting you, Gov, again, there was a poll at the weekend where people were asked, who do you most trust to lead Britain out of economic difficulties and David Cameron has gone from 29% to 41% and Ed Billiband is stuck at 25%. That's Mm. a 16 point lead Mm. combining two measures of leadership and economy, two Mm. issues that tend to uh, decide elections. That would worry me I think if I was Mm. Labour leader and I'm do Labour stick with the plan that they've they've got? They've got a year. They could change gear somewhat. They've or got to prove competence. Labour's sort of fatal flaw, if you like, is this untrustworthiness on money. Tories' fatal flaw is being seen as heartless. But it's at the moment in the current economic climate, it's Labour that's got to do more really to to deal with that. Okay, well, we'll be returning to these issues lots of times. Thank you, Rachel, for coming in and keeping these two guys apart with me, Uh, Phil and Matthew. Lots of smiles in the studio. We do really get on well with each other. And thanks to Dave McGuire, the producer, and thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back next week, but do go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral where you can listen to this podcast, uh, subscribe via iTunes, and, of course, read the articles themselves that we've been discussing. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.